Before we get started, I have an exciting announcement to make. The Progressive Bitcoiner podcast has grown quite a bit since our first episode only a few months ago, and that growth is entirely due to your support and encouragement. But I am grateful that it is now not only listeners that want to support the show. So I'm excited to announce our first sponsorship, SunExchange. SunExchange is a simple way for you to earn Bitcoin while making a positive impact on the planet. Thousands of people from more than 180 countries across the world already use SunExchange to solar power more than 60 businesses and organizations across Southern Africa. These solar projects have avoided more than 12,000 metric tons of carbon emissions from going into the atmosphere. And it's super easy. Just visit sunexchange.com backslash progressive Bitcoiner, sign up in a matter of minutes, and then browse current solar project crowd sales to find the one that inspires you. Projects include schools, farms, businesses, and other organizations in these sunny emerging markets. So for about the cost of a cup of coffee, you can buy solar cells in the project and start generating clean energy. You'll receive monthly Bitcoin payments for 20 years for the clean energy your solar cells produce. And the organizations use solar power gain access to affordable and reliable clean energy. Luckily for you, Progressive Bitcoiner listeners get a free solar cell with their first purchase at sunexchange.com backslash Progressive Bitcoiner. Incentives and the way they're structured change pretty dramatically when you feel like you need to spend to, to keep the value versus you can keep and spend later with greater purchasing power. Those are two very different things. And the decisions that come out of that have a profound impact on the environment because one encourages consumerism, which is what we've been doing for a long time now. The other one encourages other kinds of behaviors. You're still going to consume, but in a different way, presumably. So I think for me, that was kind of a big thing because I think we can actually talk about the environmental impact of Bitcoin on the mining side and all these other sides, but probably just person-to-person decision-making would be a lot more environmentally sound on a you know sound money system on a Bitcoin standard. Welcome to the Progressive Bitcoiner podcast, where we explore the intersection of Bitcoin and progressive issues. I'm your host, Mark Stefani. My guest today is Gilles Buck. Gilles' academic background is in environmental and biological studies, which led him to multiple international teaching positions. He's currently serving as secondary principal at the International School of Busan. Gilles' interest in Bitcoin led him to start the Bitcoin Nature Fund. The fund's mission is to support and fund habitat and wildlife conservation efforts through growing an endowment funded in Bitcoin. We cover a wide range of topics beyond his Bitcoin journey. So please enjoy this episode with Gilles Buck. Gio Buck, thank you so much for joining me on the Progressive Bitcoiner podcast. I'm so happy to have you. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. It's great to have a chat. Absolutely. Well, this is your, your first podcast recording, so I'm excited about that because uh, I don't have to come up with some novel questions for you. We get to explore everything fresh and anew. And with that in mind, I think it would be helpful for our listeners just to have a better understanding of who you are, your background, um, and then eventually what brought you into Bitcoin. All right. So, you know, in terms of my background, I guess it's in some ways ordinary, uh, in some ways not. Um, but really, my, my, my professional life currently is in education. Um, I'm about to start a principalship in South Korea. 
but previous to, to the admin side, I was a biology teacher. And so if you sort of go backwards, um, during university, I studied biology and my expectation was really to work in a lab. And I did that for a little bit, um, but eventually moved towards education. So really it was a kind of a science and then education career. That's really my last 20 years of my life. I have a varied background. I, you know, I'm half Swiss, half French, but I lived 10 years in the, in the U.S. in kind of my formative years, which is why I sound uh, pretty American when I speak English. But I also lived a total of 11 years in my most recent eight years in Peru, um, where a good chunk of my life is in a way, because I met my wife there, got um, my first dog there, who sadly has passed since. Um, and, you know, it's kind of a base and a home for us now. My son was born in Peru as well. But that being said, that my life's international. And as I mentioned, uh, you know, I'm, I think I'm, I'm heading to Korea. Well, I am heading to Korea uh, soon. And that's kind of my professional life. And that's, that's what I do. You know, I work in international schools uh, and I've moved around the world for many years. Bitcoin is a whole other journey. Um, and part of it ties in with education and, and the way it, it's a sort of a subtle way in that I always, I was always on the lookout for, you know, sort of making smart investments, if you will, you know, and, and what that meant is I was looking to put money somewhere because I knew I needed to build capital for my future, particularly for retirement, because I don't work inside of a school system where there's a pension. I don't have a government to stand back on because I, I've lived away from my homes um, you know, so, so I always, that was always in the back of my mind. And so I've always been reading stuff, looking at things. And, and I discovered Bitcoin at one point, um, actually very early on, um, and did nothing with it because I thought, well, this thing is weird. Uh, I don't understand it. Uh, let me ignore that. Um, and then of course, a few years later, like, oh, wow, that, that, that blew up. Let me find out more about that thing. And so I did buy Bitcoin at 190, it must have been 2015, maybe. Somebody out there is going to correct me, but around there, I think. But I didn't do my homework, frankly. So I didn't really understand what I was getting. And there's two proofs of that. One, I also bought some other stuff, which shows that I didn't really do my homework. And the other piece is I did nothing about thinking about security and, you know, having your own keys and all that good stuff that, you know, Bitcoiners talk about. And like, I guess a good number of people, I learned a lesson the hard way, because one day I logged into this place where I thought I had my stuff and it was all gone. And so lesson learned. Uh, and then I decided, okay, maybe this Bitcoin stuff is not for me. Ignored it again for a while. And then finally, I did all my homework, figured it out, decided Bitcoin was there, not really for the tech side that, that reeled me back in. It was actually the, the, the economic side. Um, so just the kind of the sound money aspect that appealed to me. And I also got over some of the other things because I also had hesitation about the energy use. And once I understood it better, then I decided, okay, you know what? It makes sense to me to jump back in because I went really like, oh, I hate this stuff. I got ripped off. Everyone's getting ripped off. It uses energy. I was really much in, in that camp, but then I kind of came back as I studied it and understood it better. So that's sort of my journey. What brought you back? Can you walk us through that process of... The questions that you were asking yourself at the time, how you were able to overcome that frustration and probably a little bit of shame in, in losing your, your Bitcoin. What was it that uh, allowed you to come back and take a, what sounds like a third look? Yeah, it, it definitely third look. And, and I think a big part of it was just, hey, this thing is still there. 
it's still happening. There's still a lot of people invested in, and yes, you know, price has gone up. So what's this thing? Why is it still going up? What is this all about? So it always kept drawing me back. And I think the one thing that I will say, sort of the entire environment, you know, in 2019 versus 2015 versus the early years, like, holy cow, was it easier to get information, right? And, and figure out like, okay, this person's just trying to sell something versus this person is just explaining stuff and you can kind of figure it out. It was just easier for a common person to, you know, to follow and, and try to figure things out. And so, you know, on a educator salary, to be able to put away some savings into Bitcoin, because that's the way I view it. In 2018, it made sense. I was like, okay, I can take this risk and I can do it the right way. You know, I can, I can, you know, hold my keys and do all that stuff. I've learned my lesson. It was like, okay, I can, I can risk some of my savings, my family's savings to do this and save it here, right? And so that, that was kind of what brought me back, this idea of less as an investment, but more as a savings mechanism and somewhere where I can, I can actually take care of it, which is exactly what I didn't do the first time. So um, that was my journey. And so you not only get burned by losing your Bitcoin on an exchange, but you have concerns about its energy use. Was there a book, an article, a podcast that uh, flipped a switch for you to say, this is something I should definitely be taking an additional look at and, and deeper dive into? You know, that, that's a great question. I'm not sure what sparked the kind of environmental side. Like, yeah, I, I kind of... And I guess when we talk about the Bitcoin nature fund, I can talk a little about it. I just had this little epiphany. Um, but certainly I heard lots of people talking about the environment here and there, but not like today. Like today, you know, there's some very prominent voices on Bitcoin Twitter. You can definitely hear about environmental concerns being raised and also defense of thereof, uh, thereof, right? You can hear both sides. You can hear people going back and forth. You can really get, tune into that much more easily today. Uh, and there's good articles out there on energy use and, you know, mitigating and, and you know, using methane to mine, et cetera, all this stuff. But I, I can't point to a single thing that, that kind of brought me over. I don't know what it was. I mean, I certainly started listening to lots of podcasts, probably all the big ones that everybody knows about on there, where the ideas were sparked, where enough information got into my brain. I can't tell you. I, I don't have that, you know, my finger on the, on the way that, that happened in, 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 well, in my brain, I guess. There was a moment. Yes. An evolution, so to speak, of when you thought of it as investment, then savings, and then now something much, much more. Can you kind of pinpoint that journey where those changes took place? Or was it just a natural evolution of, of ongoing education? I, I think it's probably a natural evolution of ongoing education. I think when I got... In, in 2019, where I actually parked, you know, money in a sound way, I still didn't have the full picture. So there was continued education. And it's kind of like, okay, now I'm invested. I need to learn even more. I did way better than the first time, obviously. Um, but, but still, I was, I was following along. And so at that point, I think understanding for me, I mean, there's a couple of things I can point to. So one of them is, you know, we're right now where you know inflation's all the talk. But in 2019, I finally understood that like inflation is actually something that we make, as opposed to this is a natural order of things. That was new to me. I didn't really ever think about economics. I'm not an economics, never interested me. I'm 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 a bio guy. Give me bugs, you know. Uh, that that's where I my heart lies. 
But that was sort of uh, my own real big learning is like, this is not something that is organic. It is something that, that is made by us. We produce this system. We create a system where, you know, we accept two to 3% in sort of the, you know, I guess the, the advanced economies as being normal every year. Of course, that harm is the 50%, the bottom 50% way uh, 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 more strongly because they don't have assets to appreciate with inflation or beyond inflation. So really we're taking from the bottom half, but that realization was big for me. And so that kind of pushed me towards, okay, maybe this sound money thing makes a lot more sense than I was already thinking about. And so that kind of pushed me in that direction as well. So that was one of them. On more the environmental side, it was sort of the, the continuation of that. If you continue down that, that, that direction, you realize that you know incentives and the way they're structured change pretty dramatically when you feel like you need to spend to, to keep the value versus you can keep and spend later with greater purchasing power. Those are two very different things. And the decisions that come out of that have a profound impact on the environment because one encourages consumerism, which is what we've been doing for a long time now. The other one encourages other kinds of behaviors. You're still going to consume, but in a different way, presumably. So I think for me, that was kind of a big thing because I think we can actually talk about the environmental impact of Bitcoin on the mining side, on all these other sides, but probably just person-to-person decision-making would be a lot more environmentally sound on a you know sound money system on a Bitcoin standard. That would be my hypothesis. Now, all these things are hypotheses. You know, We don't know what will happen in the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years. But shouldn't we try something else? Because I think a lot of the things we've been trying haven't worked particularly well. And this is part of why I'm interested in the Bitcoin Nature Fund as well, is that I look a lot of them on you know, the NGOs working in environment, and some of them are doing great work, but a lot of them are also doing the very same thing, profiting pretty well. You know, Their top employees are making a million bucks a year. They're spending 85% of all their earnings in donations on themselves. And where's, you know, where's the bank for the buck? How much have they achieved? Don't get me wrong. We have made strides in some places, right? Like in, in some people doing great work. There's people who care. But at the same time, you know, maybe, maybe that needs to be disrupted a bit as well. Maybe we can do these things a little bit differently too. And so that's part of my thinking. And we can get into that a little later. Yeah, we most definitely should as it relates to the Bitcoin Nature Fund, uh, because I think that is a very specific topic as it relates to Bitcoin and, and donations and something that Gladstein has, has touched on, you know, as it relates to poverty in, in say, Africa. Majority, 90 plus percent of those donations are going straight into the coffers of the government and barely ever make it into the people's hands. So, yes, let's get there uh, soon. But I actually want to deviate here uh, a little bit. Uh, Given your biology background, I'm curious to know if you've read books or other content that is unrelated to Bitcoin, but still somehow ties back in. And what I'm getting at and what I personally can speak to is uh, some of the books on uh, complex systems, such as Jeffrey West's scale uh, book. After reading some of those, uh, to me, it seemed much more of a natural uh, biological state that being um, distributed decentralized systems and yet humans have this tendency to centralize everything and there's this again creative destruction where things centralize we destroy it recentralizes we destroy it 
getting back to my question, are there books that you've come across that read where you're like, hey, this this relates a lot to Bitcoin, even though it's not directly about it? You know, I don't know if I've ever thought of it that way, but certainly, you know, I don't have a name on my fingertips, but maybe someone will come to me. But, you know, ecology is, you know, everything related to ecology is a perfect example of, you know, complex systems. You can also on the other side, the molecular side, and, and certainly the inside of a cell is, is incredibly a complex system as well. And there are in both of those realms, because my, my background is sort of in both of those realms. I did molecular genetics. So it's a very kind of micro side of biology. And then I also did a lot of ecology when I, you know, I studied in Tanzania for a semester. And so I, I, I hear what you're saying, because that, that's actually what, one of the things that makes sense to me in this whole thing is that I look at these systems. I mean, they work beautifully. They can be harsh in how they make themselves work beautifully. What I mean by that is, you know, predation is brutal. Starvation can happen. Disease happens. But these are ways that the system gets uh, rebalanced. But the point is the system works and no one's, no one's got the wand to stick to the organization. And you're right, we have this tendency and this is almost this desire to, 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 to be authoritarian and tell people how to do things. And that's, that's the whole centralization uh, that you're referring to. And so, yes, it's an appeal to me and it makes sense to me. But your question is on a particular book and I can't pinpoint something that fits. The way I relate it to back to Bitcoin is that we're, we're trying to centrally plan a complex system, our economy and the, the, the world finance. Mm-hmm. And we wonder why it fails, right? And we continue to put in leaders whom we think are going to make a difference. And they may pass a law that we hail, yet it has unintended consequences uh, for many, many other people. And so there's always this push and pull of positive and negative. And until reading other books like that, I didn't fully understand the power that a decentralized system Mm -hmm. may have in better managing other complex systems. Absolutely. No, I, it makes complete sense to me. I mean, what, what you're saying, your hypothesis makes sense, that basically we can operate a better financial system in a decentralized way because it mimics essentially an ecological system. I mean, to put it kind of in simple terms. Right, right. That makes complete sense because the way we have this hubris as people thinking that we can know enough of the variables to make the best decision. While all the evidence always shows we never have enough control of the variables. And if we had a decentralized system, it would find its balance more easily with probably less collateral damage in the long run. And, you know, it's easy to point to, oh, here, you know, that herd starved to death, right? Well, if we only had, you know, know, provided more, you know, uh, fodder, uh, they would have done better, right? Because there's also this kind of managed uh, ecology in certain parks and things, national parks. Those are the kinds of things that we, 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 we try to do in some places, right? We intervene, you know, give them more fodder, they don't starve. But then, of course, that has knock-on effects. And, and the financial system is the same thing. You know, we, when we see something fail, we'll do something. But then, of course, it causes downstream effects and eventually a greater failure. So I think it's, there's great lessons there. But to get back, you know, I mean, I... You know, you could rattle off sort of the, the big names of, of ecology for E.O. Wilson, et cetera, but I don't have a good book that would have been my connecting piece, but I've always felt that that's why it makes sense to me, right? One of the reasons this stuff makes sense to me is that I sort of have an understanding of, of how these, these, these systems function. 
Well, let's talk about uh, the Bitcoin Nature Fund. When did you start this? When did the idea start to germinate? So, I mean, we incorporated April 2021. So I think the idea must have been November 2020, really, around there, when I really got the idea. And there was sort of a couple different things. You know, it's like, if Bitcoin is what many of us think it is, then wouldn't it be great to have a little bit of that network kind of work purely for conservation work, right? Like to be sort of dedicated to that. So if we could raise funds and start kind of operating in a kind of a Bitcoin native way and kind of do two things, right? Create a fund where we we try to keep some of our donations over time to get sort of the appreciation so that we can then use it more effectively downstream and also immediately use Bitcoin via Lightning to get kind of around all these other things, to get get around a lot of the, really quite frankly, the waste. And, you know, so if I want to reforest in the gold fields in the Amazon, you know, someone's going to have to plant trees because nothing grows on its own there. Like it's dead, right? We can get to that too, but it's dead. The only way you're going to have that is by having somebody go there take sand out, put in some good, you know, fertilized soil, put a tree in. That's both expensive, but you need a person there. It wouldn't be much more easier if you put, you know, sats right in their pockets, right? You you directly control it with very little uh, friction. And so you could really operate very lightly and build towards the future at the same time, right? So that's kind of the, the twin idea. This idea of being able to really distribute funds very efficiently, very easily, while also building towards the future because you're building this fund over time. Uh, that, that's essentially the idea. For the purpose, our mission is, 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 is reforestation. Uh, I mean, I have a sentence on the website, but really the, the idea is to rewild, to, 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 to conserve land, but to basically reestablish nature in its sort of most pure way, right? So take something that's degraded, let it be re- rehabilitated, uh, let the land recover, rewild it, um over time that's the basic concept that could be a stream in a city right it could be uh you know a barren land next to a forest right it it really could be anywhere it could be really small in scale it could be very large in scale the whole point is you're taking land that's less than desirable and you're trying to improve it that's really the the purpose obviously there's huge knock-on effects but generally when you do that you are going to become more of a carbon sink right so if you take a barren land and turn it into forest, great carbon sink, bringing species back to a place where they were lost, has a lot of side benefits, you know, keystone species, and then you tend to increase biodiversity. There's a lot of knock-on effects there. So that's a basic premise. There's other organizations working in this kind of field, but we really want to do it via Bitcoin. That's, that's the goal. That's the objective. So you get to introduce to Bitcoin many years ago. You see it as savings. Uh, or excuse me, you see it as an investment, then you see it as savings, and then you see it as something that might have an environmental impact. Mm-hmm. And then nearly two years ago, you want to start the Bitcoin Nature Fund. Yeah. Why were you compelled to form this? Well, that's that's a good question. I mean, I think, you know, I'm 47. I have a almost, well, Sunday, nine-year-old son. Um, you know, we're a happy family. I've got a good career. I am on a sabbatical, so I have a year off. So part of that was, you know, I was looking ahead. I was like, what do I want to do with this upcoming year? 
And so part of it was like, oh, I can put some time into this project. So that was part of it. It was a good time to think of something new. Um, and so that's part of it. You know, did I go back and forth? Do I want to bother? Do I want to have put the energy in? Uh, yes, I did. Um, but also, you know, it sort of was a piece that was missing. I didn't have that, that other outlet, right? I never built something of my own. You know, I've worked for other people. I worked in companies, you know, so kind of building something else made sense. And then for me, on you know, the idea of giving back to something that's been dear to my heart for forever. I've, I mean, I've been, you know, I was the kid running around in Switzerland, you know, trying to grab trout with my bare hands in the streams. You know, I, I was always kind of the nature kid. Um, it was never a doubt that I was going to study biology in university. Like, it, this, is, this was my area. You know, I studied environmental studies as well. And so the idea of, uh, of going towards a nonprofit that's dedicated to conservation of nature, just, it was very logical. The question really was just, do I want to start something or not? Because, you know, I've been supporting different organizations over the years. Um, so that was definitely a big part of it. I will say that there have been some frustrations with the way certain nonprofits, I mean, not even the Bitcoin part, but that's also a frustration. But like um, just the way I think politicization is part of it, um, where to me, this is sort of, I mean, in some ways it's a bit dumb because everything's political in some ways, but to me, we should try or aim for nature conservation to be as apolitical as possible. And I think sometimes we lose sight of it in very silly ways, you know, and because there's very different approaches that can work. So I'll give you one very plain example. You know, there'll be whole groups of environmentalists. This is a caricature and definitely a, a generalization. But, you know, urban environmentalists will be, for example, very anti-hunting in some cases, right? Particularly trophy hunting. I'm no fan of trophy hunting myself. But sometimes we talk about rural hunters as non-environmentalists. And, you know, it's such a silly split. Like, it's a difference of certain actions, but ultimately there's, there's way more in common there. You know, these groups of people can totally work together to for a common aim towards nature conservation, right? Both depend on, in different ways, on, on, on a good natural environment. But we create these artificial fences and, and then we talk over each other and there's all, crap, all kinds of crap happening. So part of that gets fueled, though, and that, that I find very frustrating. And so part of it, I was like, you know what? What if we can create more of kind of a neutral voice for just like, hey, we just do good work and that's it. And then we do so with the least amount of friction as possible. You know, one of the other frustrations I had is, I, I was been visiting my parents and they, they live in the US. And because they donate to different organizations commonly, um, I mean, this, you know, stacks of, of, of ads from NGOs coming in every, every month, just even though they explicitly say we don't want anything in paper, every month, tons of things come in, you know, unnecessary waste, just completely unnecessary for people who say their mission is not to, right? But it works because it, it helps the bottom line ultimately, right? So, so, so we do it anyway. And well, I say, how about no? How about we do it a different way, clean, start fresh? You know, so in, 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 in this tiny organization that I started, you know, right now it's all volunteer. Um, I pay for everything that's all our costs. And I'm going to do that for at least five years. And after five years, if we're not running, we'll shut down. And if it's working, then great. Then maybe I'll just keep going and... Uh, and then if we're really pumping, then yes, then we're probably going to have to start, you know, getting some employees and things like that. But for now, that's, we're just going to work purely a volunteer. Everything that gets donated to us will go into the fund. 
and we'll start distributing those as soon as our projects are up and running. And so the, we have had this idea of us sort of bringing projects forward, but also uh, we're working on a shout out to my first volunteer, uh, James, who's, who, who, who's going to put up a, um, a page for people to bring in their proposals so that we can get some proposals from people out there who, so we can generate some ideas of who we should fund and where we should fund them and how we should fund them, et cetera. But that's, that's another um, a thing coming up. So really it's about being Bitcoin native, being as fluid, as quick, as adaptable as possible. Um, and really dedicated to one thing and one thing only. Like we want to rebuild things from the environmental side. So, you know, there's a stream, let's rehabilitate it. There's a, you know, degraded forest, let's try to help that forest regrow. Uh, and it could be anywhere in the world. So that's basically our premise. Um, and, you know, a lot of that, of course, is partnerships. So that's, you know, we are looking for partnerships with other organizations. We're looking to, to get support. Well, when you see Ripple's Chris Larson buyout Greenpeace USA, it certainly makes one frustrated uh, that what you assume to be benevolent organizations could be bought, that their mission could be bought by somebody who is under an investigation being sued by the SEC. To me, that's the biggest injustice. Um, and it, and it sure. just harkens back to the political environment and a lot of these organizations to me, seem no no different just because you have the label of a not for profit. Um, you know, is means nothing. It's just like the hospital system. The not for profit hospital CEOs are making millions of dollars, and it's sure. it's 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 so frustrating. And so, the purpose of Bitcoin and for the Bitcoin Nature Fund is one of the the main reasons is to be able to cut out all that red tape and. Once donations are received, to be able to put it in the pockets of the people doing the work. And so Precisely. the hope then is that you're less dependent upon paying for all of the BS overhead that in turn, a lot of these organizations probably need to go get donations from, need to go to the Chris Larson's for to, uh, to get paid. Is that, is that accurate in your mind? I think that's very accurate. Yeah, Absolutely. No, I think that's exactly right. I mean, that's a great example of, of the kinds of stuff I see that frustrates me. Now that I'm in Europe, you know, obviously the war is raging in Ukraine, but, you know, Germany, a country that has produced so much solar and wind energy, yet is now putting up more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere than before because of lobbying groups that shut down the nuclear front. Um, and... I understand we can have disagreements on nuclear, but the idea that that's somehow better for the environment, that environmental groups think that buying natural gas from Russia is better than producing natural gas with the regulations that you would, you would have in Europe, where you could clearly produce natural gas more cleanly, but we're not gonna do that because it looks better if we shop over in Russia. And now we see even down, further downstream effects. That the net impact on CO2 in the atmosphere was it went up, even though green groups, supposed green groups, were lobbying for it. And then the extra knock-on effect of having a nice war in Europe now. So this kind of stuff is all over the place. Does the fund have a, a first project in sight? Yeah, so that's a great question. The one that I have in sight uh, that I'm working on right now, uh, I have a former student of mine who's uh, working in uh, Puerto Maldonado area, which is 
the Peruvian Amazon quite close to where the gold fields are that I wrote about uh, in the Bitcoin Magazine article. And so I'm in touch with her. And what we're working on is what I'd like to do, what we're working on is trying to get basically a, a piece of, of the gold fields. So it's a land that's been degraded. Um, and then there's a local NGO there uh, that works, I think, with uh, the university in, let's say, Georgia, maybe Georgia Tech. I'm not sure which university, but the NGO is called Ciencia. Um, and they actually were trialing basically reforestation on those lands. So they did experimentation with you know, which species take, uh, what kinds of materials you need to provide to make them grow, because we're, we're talking about severely degraded land, right? I mean, this is, they're basically sand pits with heavy metals uh, when this is done. You go from Amazon tropical primary forest to nothing. I mean, it's, it's pure devastation. And so they did experiments to try to figure out what would work. And they work with another NGO that provides the saplings. And so in a sense, the infrastructure is there because, you know, if we can get the, the, the land part sorted out, then we can tap the knowledge from Ciencia and the saplings from the other organization. Um, and it's just a matter of organizing, you know, work, workers to get out there to, to, to start planning because the know-how is there. Now, that's the challenge with reforestation in those kinds of lands, and which is why I think it's an interesting project, is that it's not going to happen organically, right? Normally, these kinds of things just happen. I mean, you know, trees grow back, right? Like, but not in this environment, it's too degraded. And so you need to put humans on foot into these areas to actually plant these trees. And so there's cost because people need to be paid and saplings need to be bought. You don't get to just depend on this person. But the idea is that once these trees grow for a number of years, then organic matter from the leaves uh, will start improving the fertility of the soil. And over time, you'll, you'll start getting more of an organic growth coming. So that's the premise. Um, so that's one I'm working on. We're looking for other projects. Uh, probably, we're particularly interested in more bite-sized projects, I would say, because uh, if we could have something early to show people, that would be useful. Because I know that right now, if you look at our website, it's still quite rudimentary, and it's kind of like looking into the void. Uh, and we want to be able to put up uh, what we're working on, what we're doing. So that one sort of, it, it's going, but it's going to take some time to get all the details handed out and get the work done and, and, and going. Um, so we're looking to do that and hopefully get at least a few small projects going. So something really small, targeted, where we can, we can get some proof of the pudding quickly so people can see the kinds of things that we're interested in doing to hopefully get the ball rolling and get some more uh, traction. Because that's really the goal. How much would you need to raise to do a small micro project versus something like the uh, replanting the, the sand lots? Yeah, so I mean... So my micro projects, I mean, it could be tiny, right? Like, I mean, if we're talking about a section of, you know, an urban area that's to say a 10 meter by 10 meter area, right? Like you could have a 10 meter plot somewhere in a city that's just kind of an empty parking, well, not parking lot because it would be property, but if, if it's something you have access to, there's something great to land there, you could rebuild, you, you, could, you could have that become a little biodiversity hotspot, right? That, you don't need that much. Now, we're assuming that you have the rights to do the work and that depends on the countries. So it could be anything in terms of cost, right? Because sometimes you, you'll be allowed to or not. But like, let's say you just need to go and do the work. That's not that expensive. I mean, you could probably have 500 bucks in most places in the world. You can do a lot with because you can do all kinds of things to encourage biodiversity, you know, uh, insect habitats, um, you know, pollinators, you know, native plants, all that stuff is relatively 
fast and relatively inexpensive, depending on where you are. And it doesn't require that that much labor, depending. The gold fields, um, I don't have a good estimate on a per acre kind of uh, calculation yet. I'd like to get there, but that's that's kind of one of my early to-dos. Um, I'm guessing it's going to be 10 grand-ish, something like that, easily. Well, before we get into uh, your Bitcoin and gold article, I'm curious to know, you know, you've spent your career in biology and teaching. You are an environmentalist. What are you understanding about Bitcoin that other environmentalists are missing? I think most just want to dismiss it because it's just energy use that is not useful equals bad. And I think I really think that the vast majority of people don't want to go beyond that. And that, that's just the biggest block. It's just this huge block. It's like, oh, my God, lots of energy. Energy use bad. Don't want it because it's not seen as useful. And it's seen as this money thing. It's like it's just about money. Right. And so because it's just about money and he uses energy, it can't possibly be good. And, and this is actually a little segue. But I actually think that moralizing energy use is a terrible road to go down. And that's one of the things, again, in, in the environmental movement that I, I really want to push back on. We are not going to win by going down this road. We're going to, to go down a really ugly road. Because once you start moralizing, where are we going to draw the lines? What else is, right? You know, one person's porn is the other person's, you know, church or whatever. Like, you know, what are we going to do? It's a very, very dangerous road. If we want to improve it, look on generation side. Let's generate more energy cleaner. And yes, this is difficult. And it's a problem. It's a long term. Absolutely. But that's how we're going to get there. We cannot be anti-human. We cannot be anti-human. And, and again, I say that because I'm sorry, but some really come across that way. And it turns people off. And it's, it's, it's going to, it pushes people against the environmental agenda, if you want to call it that. And really, the only way we're going to win is, is people and the environment, both you know, humanity and the planet. That's the way we win. There's, there's no going against people. You know, it, it's not population reduction by blah, blah, blah. No, it's not. It's freedom. And people are going to choose to have less babies over time and, or whatever. But the point is, we, we, have, we can't be anti-human. And if you restrict liberty, again, it's like, yes, you could get there by saying, you're not allowed to do this. But guess what? That's going to backfire. You are much better off working with incentives, which is where Bitcoin really comes in so that people are ending up doing the right thing anyhow. That's, that's really the ticket. And so I think for environmentalists, get back to your question, if they can get beyond this whole energy use bad thing, and again, start looking at Bitcoin as actually having utility, and then going, I guess, just going down the rabbit hole, right? And it's, the problem is it's, it's a lot of counterintuitive stuff in Bitcoin, and it's a deep hole, right? There's a lot of things, you got to chase that rabbit. <laughs> and so... Uh, I think that's a challenge, you know, and I think there's good stuff coming out now where people can dip their toes in and some of it is unproven. You know, we should also be honest about that, right? Like I have a very good sense of what I think is going to happen if we go on a Bitcoin standard over the next 20 to 30 years. And I think it's very overwhelmingly positive, both for humanity and for the environment. But I, I don't know the future at the end of the day, right? And so you know, I think if we can experiment and start showing evidence, that would be really helpful. So be it on the mining side, be it on the other side, 
I think in my own little way, if we can show that, you know, as a Bitcoin Nature Fund, we can do some good work, maybe that's nice too. And this is micro, but still. But the point is, you know, showing that, you know, it's not a bunch of people who just want to get rich, you know, or, or poor as these last couple of days have shown. <laughs> right. But sat rich because it doesn't matter, right? But the point is, you know, it's not that. It's, there's a lot more. There's people who care deeply about all kinds of things. Uh, and it's not one end of the political spectrum or the others. I would argue that there's people all over the map. And that's, you know, I think when people can get over those, I guess, you know, caricatures of Bitcoiners and the Bitcoin ecosystem, that will help too. Uh, but I do feel like there's more good information out there now than there was before. So I think more people will start figure it out and, and at least give us a chance. There's certainly a lot more people questioning uh, the narratives. There's a lot more content coming out from every single news outlet uh, that's out there. And I think each opportunity from one of those articles that we, that we get is an opportunity to dispel some of the fraud out there, some of the misinformation. And people get taken in at the the periphery, meaning there's always going to be people who, who don't want to uh, accept Bitcoin for what it is. But each time that we try to, in our best ability, to bring people on board, uh, rather than you know replying with vitriol, we, we bring people in at the periphery every time uh, throughout each one of these cycles and every one of these FUD cycles. Right. So with that, I'm, I'm, I'm certainly optimistic. Uh, one of the critiques that I'm sure you'll face is why aren't you just simply doing this with uh, the U.S. dollar? What would be your response to that? Yeah, I think to a larger degree, it's, it's, I guess it's two things. You know, I think some of it I can't do, right? So, if, for example, if I want to efficiently, you know, say, pay a group of 15 people when improving Amazon um, with the U.S. dollar, that's not on a day-to-day, day -day, right, for a daily day's wage, you know, I think that's pretty inefficient. And, yeah, there's ways you can create local bank accounts, blah, 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 but it would be very difficult, right? And, and I think it would actually be quite easy uh, using using lightning. So that's just one, one example. Part of it is I just don't want to because I, want to recre I don't want to recreate what already exists, right? There's a lot of NGOs out there operating. I really want to start fresh as something different and new uh, with very clear sort of values in terms of how efficiently we run, how cheaply we run, and how we do the work. And I think that's much clearer and more transparent through the Bitcoin standard. Um, ideally, and, and I think down the road, you know, I, I want to have this all completely transparent too. Like, you know, here's the address for the fund, right? Everybody can see it on the blockchain, right? This is where we keep our treasury. Everybody can see what we have. We can see it when we, there's our lightning address and here's where it went. And people can know where it went. So there's no like hiding where our funds went. Yeah, I'd like to be 100% transparent and that's doable in a way it's much easier to do with well certain aspects of Bitcoin uh, than than in traditional way, right? Like I just think it'd be it'd be a pretty straightforward way of being that way as well, operating transparently. And I think the third thing, which is that you know I do believe that Bitcoin is going to have a higher value ten years from now than it does today. And so you know as we grow projects, we also want to grow the fund over time, so that we can basically get bigger, quicker than we would on a USD. Because on the USD, as our treasury gets USDs, that's a melting ice block. You know, the idea is that with whatever we keep in our treasury, 
that's going to grow in purchasing power. Therefore, we can do more work down the line with it. And so it's sort of this balance of, of, of funding projects immediately as we grow to fund. But the idea is that we'd be able to get more purchasing power over time. Therefore, more good work getting done than if we were on a USD because we wouldn't be able to, to get a growth of the US dollars purchasing power over time. We'd get the opposite. I want to talk about your article that you wrote for Bitcoin Magazine entitled Bitcoin Fixes Illegal Gold Mining. First, why why illegal? Why did you choose to be explicit about illegal gold mining versus gold mining in general? So I guess the backstory is I've been going to that part of the Peruvian Amazon for, I guess, 15 years now. Um, and pretty much yearly, except for a four-year hiatus. But for the most part, every year I've been going to that part of Peruvian Amazon. And that part has two types of mining. It has illegal and informal. And they are a little bit distinct in that informal is not illegal, but it's informal in the sense that it's not a you know, corporation doing it. And really, it's about where it's being done. So in some places, it's illegal. In some places, it's informal because there is some allowance by the government to do gold mining, gold mining but only in certain ways. Um, so that's kind of the, the short answer of what that is. So, so part of it is just because it's happening in that part of the Peruvian Amazon and there isn't any kind of like, you know, big corporate mining. In Peru, that kind of mining happens mostly in the Andes for gold, while in the Amazon, it's primarily this, this one. But the other thing is this kind of mining is much more responsive to price in that, you know, it, it's much quicker. To, you know, there's no environmental permitting there's no studies ahead of time. There's not these huge infrastructure build-outs. So it's really more people show up. And yes, there's, there's also you know, machinery brought, et cetera, but, but more of that shows up or less of that shows up, right? And so it, the price of gold, was it 2010 that it went up quite a bit? 2008, 2008 maybe. But whenever it spiked, that caused a huge spike in, in uh, gold mining in, in, um, in the Peruvian Amazon. And by the way, the same thing's happening in Guyana's, you know, in, in that part of the Amazon as well. So this is not just Peru, there's other places that this kind of gold mining occurs. And it's basically very responsive to price. So then I naturally started thinking, well, if it's very responsive to price as it goes up, it should also be very responsive to price as the price goes down. Because it basically becomes less, you know, the, the margins are pretty thin, I think. Um, and so it becomes not economical to do unless people are going to be interested, especially as the labor prices go down. By the way, these are syndicates primarily running them. You know, the people doing it by and large are day laborers. They're getting a decent wage compared to other things they could do. I don't blame people trying to make a living, but the syndicates behind it are quite ugly. But the point is, you know, and, and yes, it's a big stretch. The point is, if, if Bitcoin is able to strip the monetary value of gold, I think long-term that, that that should happen. Then, of course, there's a lot of benefits. One huge benefit is for places like the Peruvian Amazon because we will no longer find the greatest value in basically getting rid of the forest. We'll start using the forest for other means. And that's happening there too. Ecotourism is a huge business, as I pointed out in the article. But also, you know, I think we're going to start using gold for other purposes because right now, many, particularly engineering areas, we don't use gold because it's too expensive. But if you weren't, we could use it for, for technology. Um, the, the properties of metal of gold are such that um, it has a lot of benefits in, in engineering that we're currently not doing purely on the price point. So if we can actually remove the monetary premium, 
it would be good, period, in many different ways. Now, again, it's a big if. Are we stripping you on his tariff premium? I don't know. I know some people have suggested it's already happening in that that is partially why. Some people are making a hypothesis that it's one of the reasons why gold hasn't responded so much right now. There's a lot of other hypotheses out there. But if we strip that premium, and uh, then, then I, I personally believe there's a lot of positive ramifications, including the environmental one. How much do these day laborers get paid for the illegal gold activity? Yeah, so back in uh, the day is about, I don't know if prices have changed, but about three years ago it was $80 a day, which is a lot of money um, for people in that part of the world. So 80 bucks a day, which it, it's a lot of money. That is a lot of money. And so if, if you're going to, your fund, if you're going to be planting trees and reforestation, then mm-hmm. I think it's only natural that you hire the people that would otherwise have uh, done the illegal gold digging. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I had thought of that. And yes. Tell us about how the illegal gold activity affects not only the local environment there, paint that picture for us, but also how it might affect the, the communities. Is there, does it correlate with increasing crime or anything else? Yeah, so it correlates, I think, with pretty much all the ugliness that you can kind of think of. So there's sort of two, two things. So there's these mining camps. Basically, if you go back a little bit, so this particular part, what really another thing that really blew up the, the gold mining is that there was a road built, the Interoceanica, which is basically connects um, the Peruvian Amazon to the Brazilian Amazon. and basically allows goods to go Pacific to Atlantic. And so when they built the road, the talk was, you know, it was just a road and nothing would be done off of the road. But that road allowed for then access to the forest and then access to new forest for mining. And so that's the first step. So now when you, 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 you deforest, I mean, the way this works is it's, it's deforest and the, the, the basic machinery is these massive water hoses that, that, that basically silt down the dirt. So all the sand and dirt gets silted down and then that gets sludged through uh, with heavy metals, primarily mercury for amalgamation of the gold. And so you're adding a lot of mercury to the system. Studies from 2015 showed that there's communities that have, uh, where 70, 75% of the people have uh, uh, mercury levels that are multiples higher than the highest recommended levels. Uh, so there's that. And a lot of that is because the mercury will bioaccumulate and then mag- biomagnify up the food chain. And so when the humans eat fish, um, they end up with really high levels of, of mercury. And that, of course, has developmental effects on the people. Um, there's a lot of native communities in that part of the Amazon as well that, that depend primarily on fishing for protein. So that's definitely kind of one of the human tolls. The other side of it is that it's sort of a Wild West area. So it's very similar, I think, you know, in kind of if you think of the American context, you know, the 49ers in California, at least I could be very well wrong, but my picture of those mining towns were kind of these raucous, you know, people who made a quick buck um, who then, you know, gamble and then have, you know, prostitution and all these kinds of things that come with it. That's happening there too, right? It's it's similar kind of thing. You've got a lot of young men going to do work. They end up having more money than they've ever had before. It brings in prostitution, including underage. Um, some of these women are smuggled in. All those things happen too. There's different criminal syndicates that fight each other at times. 
I was talking to a ranger about five years ago at the, at the fork of the Malanowski and the Rio Tambopata. And really, these are the, you know, I wrote this in the piece. It's, it's, the, it's the fork in the road, because basically, if you go up to Malinowski, you end up um, near these gold fields. While if you go up the other way, it's really kind of gets super pristine because you're between the National Park and the National Reserve. But he, this one, most of the years when I talked to the rangers there, they just kind of run through the mill and didn't share that much. But that one year, this guy just had it and he, he had it. And he just, you know, I'm, he's just let it go. He's like, I'm tired of this. I watched them come by. They, you know, they wave guns at us. We can't do anything. They're on their boat. Meanwhile, I have to fish bodies out of the river from time to time. Um, and I don't get any support from, from anyone. We don't have guns. We don't have military. We don't have police. And he was just frustrated and just let it out. And so that moment taught me a lot. And I think I hold on to that a lot. Um, you know, here was this man who would you know, makes not 80 bucks a day as a park ranger for proving government does so because he cares. And, you know, it's something that he's, you know, he values living there and being there. You talk to a man like that and it really makes you appreciate the scale of the problem in a lot of ways. Um, There's been some really good articles written. Um, You know, I I, I linked one in uh, my article. Uh, It's a New York Times piece. And it goes really into the human side and the human trafficking that's connected to this and sort of the the challenges of, of regulating and controlling these kinds of areas. It's sort of the, you know, there's this, this, this environmental misery that links to human misery. At the same time, we also can't lose sight of that there are some people just going in there, doing some work, getting paid. They're not interested in destroying the forest, they're interested in getting the 80 bucks. You know, and, and, and if you're, you know, grew up in rural Andes and Puno, because a lot of these people come down from the mountains, you know, they were at, 4,500 meters living in a really rural place, no electricity. They're going down to the jungle, making just a fantastic amount of money compared to, to, to where their home, home is. And for some of these folks, they are able to bring back quite a bit of money. So th- there is that side too. And I want to say it's all, you know, they're not all bad people. I don't want to say that. It's not all bad, but the environmental degradation is all bad. And there is this really ugly human cost that comes with it. And so there are better ways to create futures for people and to help people. Right. You're saying that the incentive structure, there should be a different incentive structure that can maintain the same ends, better ends, rather than the destruction that we see with having to mine gold uh, due to its premium. Yeah. And I mean, also another thing that you understand is we're talking about, this is gold dust, right? And Uh, this is why it's such huge areas of forest that get destroyed. It's just that... Basically, the, the, the Amazon, the, the Tamopata, which is the river there, it weaves, right? And the Maranowski weaves. And so basically, all the forest used to be where the riverbed used to be, right? Like the riverbed has been everywhere at some point in history. And so there's gold dust all over the place where the riverbed used to be, but it's just dust. So they have to strip huge amounts of soil and dirt to be able to get enough dust amalgamated with giant quantities of mercury to be able to get the gold out. And then all that mercury, of course, goes downstream in the river. Do you know where the gold ends up? Did it, does it end up in the international markets or does it stay local? Yeah, I mean, it goes, on a short term, it just goes to Puerto Maldonado, which has a bunch of gold shops to buy. Um, and then from there, I, I really never, you know, I, I never looked at that angle. I never traced it. Hmm. Um, it's a good question. 
I don't know if it makes it into international markets. My guess would be yes, um, just because I don't think it'd be too difficult to get it there. And it's probably where you can get a better price ultimately. There's probably a lot of middlemen, right? People producing to the next person, next person, next person until it gets out. There's probably a lot of people in that chain. Well, I've taken a look at the pictures that you uh, linked to via the, the coordinates, and it is obviously devastating to the environment. You see this patchwork of brown with lush green, just giant swaths of, of destroyed land, both sad, as you said, on a human and environmental level. Do you have any additional thoughts that you would like to share with us at this time, based either with regard to your Bitcoin Nature Fund or your, your gold article? Yeah, I mean, I think just from, I guess my thought on the gold article is just that, you know, I want to have people just think about what's happening there because it is still happening and it's not the only place that that is happening, that kind of destruction. And we sort of forget about that when we talk about, you know, gold as a whatever, because we think often we just think about the formal gold mines. They have their own environmental concerns, but they're actually much better handled. But there's this whole other world of gold production out there. And, and, and there's the swaths of jungle being affected. So I just want to kind of bring attention to it as one. And then just bring that question, can Bitcoin actually fix this? You know, and, and it is an open question, but I think there's this logical thought that, that Bitcoin should be able to strip the monetary premium. And so if you can, then, then that would definitely be one of the wins. You know, and on Bitcoin Nature Fund, and just, you know, being able to directly help that problem, for me, appeals as well. Like the idea of being able to regenerate the very forest that gold destroyed. You know, Bitcoin thick, literally builds, rebuilds the forest over, you know, however 50 years it will take. Because this is going to be some serious slow time preference stuff um, to get it back in, you know, really good shape. You know, Bitcoin reforce that very land that gold stripped is appealing to me. I love that idea. And that's one of the reasons I want to really pursue that particular project. Well, there's something incredibly magical to know that you can send SATs to somebody across the world, that I could send SATs via the Lightning Network to a Peruvian worker planting trees via your, your project, rather than having to go through the rigmarole of the U.S. dollar and some other nonprofit organization. It's the same satisfaction that you get when you can help somebody out on the streets. That that personal touch, it almost feels that close to me rather than more nebulous. And so uh, it's a very exciting in that sense to know that you, you have that ability to do it. Yeah, I think, you know, to take it even one tiny step further, like I'd love to even get to a point where, you know, we have our, let's say we have 10 workers identified who, who are, are, are collecting sats for their work. And then people can literally pay them directly. You wouldn't have to go through up, right? Like, why even go through the Bitcoin Nature Fund? We just say, like, here they are. These people are planning for us. Yeah, exactly. Let's support them. Bang, right? And then you get to put sats directly into their wallet for that work. I mean, beautiful. We just facilitated the trade, essentially. So that's another kind of step that I think is is quite beautiful. Um, and yeah, through borders from anywhere in the world for a tiny cost of a few sats to send, you know, whatever is necessary to get the job done. Absolutely. I love that idea. And I was going to circle back again, people are going to make the moral case for particular energy use. What I hear you saying is that if you are going to say that Bitcoin's energy use is not moral, is not worth its 
uh, emissions, you in turn need to ask yourself whether gold in this example is worth this destruction. And I think offering that to people is a challenge because it, it relies on some degree of cognitive dissonance, right? Mm-hmm. People are going to fall back on the sense, well, gold has utility, right? Well, then to what degree does that utility justify this monetary premium that people are going to work in these awful conditions for, let alone more safer conditions, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think the further, the more that we can put that bug in people's brains as far as really peeling back the ability to rationalize away what they see as justifiable as opposed to Bitcoin will be beneficial for the future. And, and I think that's what you're doing here is, is ultimately saying it's a little dubious to try to rationalize away Bitcoin's energy use if you're not going to say anything about this situation. Is that accurate? Yeah, I think that was quite a beautiful way of putting it. Uh, I would agree with that. Yeah. My last question one that I ask every, every person on the podcast is, Gio, what gives you hope? So I think Bitcoin gives me hope in a lot of ways. And then really, I still see the goodness in people. You know, I've traveled all over the world, 80, 80 plus countries. I've met people in the most desperate ways and in places I didn't belong. I've had all kinds of neat experiences. The vast majority of people still want the right things and they have way more in common than divides them. And so that gives me hope. Uh, Love is real. You know, that gives me hope. Um, And so I'll go with love, Bitcoin and people, goodness of people. I think you're absolutely right. And we'll leave it at that. Gio, it's been such a fantastic time talking with you. I've learned a lot. Your experience is, is inspiring. The Bitcoin Nature Fund is inspiring. So, so please tell the listeners where they can find you as well as the website. All right. So the easiest way to find uh, me is at BTC Nature Fund on Twitter. Um, also at founder at BitcoinNatureFund.org. So that's my email. And BitcoinNatureFund.org is the website. Um, they're all kind of interlinked. So if you get to one of them, you can find the others. Pretty easy to track down. Uh, if you have some time and are interested, we can always take volunteers. So we can always take uh, help. Um, you know, there's lots to do, lots to learn. I'm learning in this process. So uh, be happy to have more people on board. So if you're interested in environmental stuff, uh, if your idea of a Bitcoin Nature Fund is something that appeals, uh, get in touch. And uh, yeah, you know, uh, we are 501c3, which means that any donation is tax deductible in the US. So that's just a good thing to remember. If you feel like making a donation, that will work because um, we can definitely give you a receipt if you need it for your taxes. Just wanted to put that, that, that out there. So, Absolutely. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. This was a true joy. Thank you. Uh, I appreciate you putting me on as my first podcast. So much appreciated. Very kind of you. Uh, it's been a good chat. Absolutely. Thank you. Hey, don't forget to visit sunexchange.com backslash progressive Bitcoiner to buy solar cells that will power the projects that inspire you. You'll earn monthly Bitcoin payments for 20 years from the clean energy your solar cells generate. And the organizations you power gain access to affordable, reliable, clean energy. With SunExchange, you can easily earn Bitcoin and make a positive impact on the planet. Progressive Bitcoiner listeners get a free solar cell with their first purchase. So get started at sunexchange.com backslash progressive Bitcoiner.
Thank you so much for tuning in to the Progressive Bitcoiner. If you enjoyed the show, head on over to Apple Podcasts and please leave a review. And don't forget, we have a website, theprogressivebitcoiner.com, where we have a lot of great content on Bitcoin and progressive issues. Thanks again for tuning in.